Hey everybody and welcome back to Introspectional. I know it has been a while. So you're probably wondering, Leticia, where have you been? How have you been? What have you been up to? So actually a lot has happened. I don't know if you remember, but I actually moved from where I am in Maryland to California and a lot of things happened in California and I have moved back. So there's been a lot of things emotionally that went on with that move. Also at the same time, if I remember, I did a Kickstarter that went really well. I also produced a virtual play. And so that's the projects I've been working on. But a lot of these past few months have been spent just trying to get back on my feet. So that's where I've been for like better term. So because of that, this also means that some of the episodes that I have are just with some older pop culture references. So that is absolutely the case with this episode. In this episode, um, I'm really excited because it's a conversation between me and Dr. Maria de Blasi, who is one of my favorite people on the interwebs, one of my favorite, dis she's amazing, I love her. And you'll learn more about her on this episode. But the timing for uh, this conversation is important context. So this episode was recorded, I believe, around early um, 2022, maybe even 2021. But a lot of things, of course, happened since it's recording. And we do discuss a lot of pop culture, but of course, a lot of it is, some, is now dated. So we discuss the ending of Supernatural. We discuss the original Charmed. We also discuss the Charmed reboot at the time of the recording. The third season had gotten to a halfway point. So there was a lot that I didn't know that was going to happen. I didn't know that Macy was not going to be around in season four. We also talk about Buffy the Vampire Slater a little bit. We talk about, like I said, Supernatural. Oh, we talk about Sabrina, Flash. So there's a lot of different pop culture references in this conversation. But also at the time of recording, the new Game of Thrones series hadn't come out. Wheel of Time was still relatively new. So again, you want to situate this conversation into about roughly two years ago. But that being said, I do think this conversation is very rich and absolutely worth listening to. So I'm really excited to share it with you. Now, as far as what's coming up for Introspectional, actually, I'm going to be going to my first con as press. So that's really exciting. I'm going to go to the Farpoint convention. So that should be a lot of fun. And I'm excited to do more conventions. I'll probably do Awesome Con too. Maybe Dragon Con. Fingers crossed. We'll see. But I'm excited to, again, bring more um, nuance to some of the con conversations and also with media as I've been doing throughout this entire podcast. So please enjoy this episode. There'll be plenty more as the year goes on. I know 2023 already has been an interesting year. So hopefully this conversation while also providing uh, some insight into media will also provide a little bit of peace and hopefully happiness. That's it from me, Letitia, talking to you from January 2023. And now Letitia from whatever month in 2022 or 2021 will be speaking to you and taking over. See you later. Peace. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to Introspectional. I am so excited to have this conversation with this wonderful guest. Today, we're talking about like the evolving narrative of sci-fi media. So I know it's kind of a nebulous topic. It's not really as clear cut as a lot of my other topics. But fortunately, I have someone here who will help us discuss this particular topic. I want to refer you all back to uh, my episode, Women of Color and Sci-Fi TV. And I mentioned in that episode that the narrative around 
the phrase representation matters has evolved into more like authenticity matters. And so that includes all kinds of representation. So we're talking about representation for various racial and ethnic groups, representation as far as gender diversity, disability, LGBTQIA plus representation, immigrant representation, and so much more. There's been the demand that if you are going to include these characters, the storylines, you need to be authentic to that experience. So as we look over sci-fi media, sci-fi media has often pushed those social boundaries and has been a place for people of marginalized backgrounds to find representation or to find avatars of their experience, find experiences of characters who, while may not be identical to what they've experienced, is along those same lines and you can draw parallels. But in the wake of Black Lives Matter, Me Too, a greater understanding of systemic oppression, the role that media plays in all of that, it seems that more is being demanded of the content that we get. And so the question becomes, how is sci-fi media dealing with that? How is it dealing with the changes in the you know, social landscape, um, in the social political landscape? Have, has the media been able to evolve? Have they been able to let go of stereotypes and embrace new kinds of stories? Are the writers ready for this? What have been these successes over the past couple of years and what have been the pitfalls and if they've been able to recover? So this is just the conversation around kind of like, where is the media in regard to our society at the moment? And so for this conversation, we're gonna go over almost a 25 year arc of media going all the way back to the 2000s. I know it's very hard to believe that the year 2000 was nearly 25 years ago, but in two years, it will be 2025. Yes, all my millennials, you were old. And yes, all Gen Z's, you are coming up and the 2000s were nearly 25 years ago. I'm gonna let you sit with that for two seconds. Okay. So to help me with this conversation, I have my amazing special guest and great friend, Dr. Maria de Blasi, and I'm going to let her introduce herself and tell you just how incredible she is. So can you tell the people a little bit about who you are and your art and your area of expertise, Dr. de Blasi? Yes. First of all, thank you so much for having me on your podcast. I love it so much and I love you so much. So yay. And also 2000 felt two years ago. So I feel very old (laughs) when I think back to some of that media, but I am a professor, writer, and bruja. And so I live in New Mexico and I teach in the community college there and at the university honors college. And a lot of my work is focused on looking at historicity. So my doctorate was in 18th century literature. I'm really looking at the history of a lot of our Western ideologies and how they're uh, historically and socially located. And also by that token, like constructs. So we can start looking at things like race and gender and sexuality and class as these things that aren't set constructs. They're fluid, they're changing, they're evolving. And so I started with that and I started looking at how that impacts the way we look at a variety of media. So I look, I teach classes at the Honors College on supernatural sleuths and monster hunters and witches and the long history of those things, of those genres. I teach about romance and again, the very rich history and intersectional histories and evolving histories that aren't 
linear or this concrete line to more inclusion and progress, but it's actually quite messy and fraught. So I really love doing that. And then when I'm not doing that, I'm a writer myself. So everything I teach and uh, talk about on social media is also a way to nourish my own writing. And then I'm also a Druva, so I like to do a lot of witchy stuff in my spare time. So that's a little bit about me. I just, I love that. And you are so just wonderfully detailed. Like you could be a character in any of these stuff. It was like, so we met this doctor who is a literature professor and also a witch. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. I love that. (laughs) Just saying it's incredible. So you have this, this, you know, storied history. You are teaching people about all these different things, looking at media critically. Personally, what was your first fandom? Like, how did you get introduced to the sci-fi fantasy landscape? Was it like, hey, my my family told me stories or I was up late at night watching X-Files and I wasn't supposed to? Oh, wow. For me, it was Lord of the Rings all the way. I wanted to be a hobbit so bad. I walked around the summer of fifth grade barefoot because I wanted to grow hobbit feet. I was like learning Elvish in high school and reading all the like supplementary materials and then rereading Lord of the Rings before the movies came out. I was hardcore. And forgive me, Lord of the Rings fans, I'm going to mess this word up. So you read the, the, the was it the Silimentarian or? What, yeah, what? yeah, yeah. The Cimmerillion. Yeah. And like just everything. <laughs> and it was pretty like heady stuff so I don't remember a lot of it I think what ended up happening is I like flipped through it a lot (laughs) so I don't know how much I actually remember of that now or even the Elvish language but yeah I was hardcore and I'd walk around like I make all these like adventure maps at home and put on little hobbit outfits and then make my younger sister go on like hobbit adventures with me through middle earth and so yeah hardcore. I'm still a hobbit for life. (laughs) Hobbit for life. I love it. And the fact that the new Lord of the Rings is coming out and some people have been in their feelings about that. So we can get into that a little bit later. So that's incredible. (laughs) And I I absolutely love that. I am late to the Lord of the Rings fandom myself. So I consider myself like a visitor of Middle Earth, but definitely not a resident. (laughs) Uh, So Uh, One thing I want to talk about is you also have a YouTube channel where you share a lot of your lectures and some lectures of different academics in these various topics. In one of our YouTube videos, you talk about cult detectives and you mentioned specifically shows like Supernatural and other like early 2000s TV shows seem to have a difficulty navigating like their storytelling language moving from more of a very white, very male focused, very like, I do wacky things and don't have many consequences narratives onto the next adventure to something where a different perspective is considered, where more women are considered, more people of color are considered and their perspective is considered. So is that like a pattern that you noticed recently or is that something that's been on your mind for a while? It's something that I've started thinking about a little more seriously recently as there's been this huge push in media to have more diversity. And I'm seeing shows, particularly reboots, the Sabrina. I guess Sabrina's not completely a reboot, but The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina and Charmed. And you see some shows are pushing so hard, but they feel a little uncomfortable in what they're trying to do. So it got me thinking, what is the the Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the early Charmed, what's the difference between these two things? And then you have shows like 
supernatural that start out very conventional and very conservative. You can just even tell by Dean's like spiky gelled hair <laughs> and boot cut jeans on the first episode. You're like, that is a 2000s show. Oh my God. <laughs> you see it starts in one place. And then as they develop really strong queer fandom, particularly queer women, they lean into changing their narrative and speaking to that fandom more in, in positive and problematic ways. And so I started thinking Supernatural, it ran for 15 years, which is huge. And it is not the same show 15 years later that it started out as. Uh, Certainly not as scary as it was when it started. And because I love scary stuff and I'm a total chicken and some of the early stuff I was like, when I was watching, I was like, it's too scary. But it's also really pointing to the fact that they were developing a show during this really interesting transitional period in media that was really trying to think about how do we create more inclusive stories and just create more visibility for underrepresented groups in media. And so you have this cast, it's essentially about a bunch of white dudes running around and saving people. And they're saying, okay, what do we do here? And it's also a show that it very much starts out with a lot of toxic masculinity and like sexism and suddenly they're grappling with what does this mean for us and this isn't something that works in a 2020 lens anymore mm-hmm. if it ever did in the early 2000s it's more uncomfortable now so they do some interesting things where you see the brothers grow through their own toxic masculinity issues and work through the way they were raised to not express their feelings and there's some really funny I think fans call it the the BM movement or the BM moment which sounds like a bell movement but it's like the brother moment and it's Uh always in every episode where it's like the brothers get together and talk about their feelings which is a big deal (laughs) so you get this really like hardcore man show and it slowly transitions into this show about men figuring out what it means to like care for each other and love each other and express that and of course we have all the queer underpinnings as well because of the queer fandom and of course not everyone was happy with how that played out in the end but I thought it was really interesting that the creators chose to lean into that fandom and really celebrate it even though they didn't do everything that's really fascinating I'm thinking about this podcast that I'm I'm listening to man enough which is talking about masculinity and what does it take to deconstruct it yourself and move through that space and it started as a Facebook show now it's podcast and how challenging it is to break down this this framing this framework of this is how I am a man and this is how I I I show my intensity and and all that and breaking that down and thinking like why do I actually do this who am I trying to prove to why does this matter and does it actually help me exactly and it's interesting that is an arc that it seems that supernatural went on with these two brothers as the main focal points especially just think about when Supernatural started Supernatural started around 2005 or so and I think the WB had just started or just completed their WB to CW transition but if anyone was a teenager in the early 2000s like me the WB was our go-to teen spot of, of media and 
it was extremely monochromatic. Yeah. Very. If you put all their top shows of that era that were not the black comedies that they had on Saturdays, <laughs> then you had maybe three, four people of color, characters of color throughout all of that and barely any in the main cast is very sparse. But that being said, there was also this interest in the supernatural, whether it be with Buffy or Charmed or Roswell at the time. And it was really interesting for me as a Gilmore Girls fan. I'm like, Dean is now Sam and this is another <laughs> Dean, but Sam still looks like Dean. So I'm confused, but sure, let's go with it. Let's go with it. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, and then you do have how Supernatural starts where you do have dean being like hi i am super masculine dude and sam hi i'm sensitive nice guy dude and these are our characters that we're going forward with and what we realize as we go through the series is that they're both messed up a lot <laughs> very <laughs> but it's really interesting seeing whether or not these characters are allowed to explore that and how if and when they do so yeah, I think that's fascinating. And then also you mentioned how the series ended and some people were like, it, it was like, I see you trying something. Yes. I don't know if you got there, but I see you trying. <laughs> and there's been a couple of hiccups in the supernatural verse where people are like, hey, I see this. Are you trying to do this? And they're like, no, we're not. We're and you're like, one, why are you so sensitive about it? Yeah. Two, it's there. We're not crazy. Exactly. Yeah. And it's interesting because when I teach uh, Supernatural in my uh, Supernatural Sleuths class or class on occult detectives, I, I frame it as one of the most deeply homoerotic, but also deeply homophobic shows when it starts out. It's everyone else can see the homoeroticism, but the characters themselves got this like homophobia thing going on. And there's a lot of queer baiting in the jokes, which unfortunately is a very early 2000s thing. Um, right. When I was rewatching Gilmore Girls, I was like shocked when Lorelai, I think it was in season two and it only happened a couple times, but she like referred to something as like, so gay, like it's so derogatory. And I was like, oh my gosh, like I forgot that was a thing. And that is just so shocking now. But in the 2000s, that was normal, which is of course terrible, but so supernatural in that same zone where, you know, everything turns into a homophobic joke because these guys are so um, entrenched in this toxic masculinity. And then they somehow end up with this really strong queer fan base. And I really think a lot of it has to do with the fan fiction that comes out of those stories because mm -hmm. people want to write <laughs> the homoerotic Winces love stories and the Destiel when Dean and Castiel get together. But what's so interesting to me is then how the show tries to address that by the introduction of queer characters. So they have queer side characters that come in that are more positively portrayed in later seasons. I'm thinking of one episode in season five where they accidentally end up at a supernatural uh, kind of Comic-Con convention sort of thing. And meta, meta. <laughs> exactly. And that is there. And two of the characters they're playing, Sam and Dean, are actually uh, partners, romantic partners. And it's like a really uh, sweet 
thing to see. And they, of course, they don't get killed off, which is also important, right? Because so many of these shows in the early, late 90s, early 2000s, they kill off the minority character, we're seen as disposable. But so Supernatural really leans into the meta, the self-awareness of itself as a show that people are responding to. And then they brought in another queer character played by Felicia Day, I believe. And I forgot what her character's name is, but I do think she gets killed off. I don't know. I, I haven't, there's a couple of seasons that are just blanks for me. It went on for so long. So they're responding to their audience and trying to address issues. And to me, that's so interesting because it's the first time you see them, see a show really trying, it's like live video footage of them trying to respond and adjust and acknowledge that, hey, we have this fan base. We like this fan base. We want to keep this fan base. How do we then lean into this new kind of storytelling? And so for me, I, I give them a lot of props for even just trying to engage with it even though it didn't work well. They got their even romantic moment at the end where Castiel confesses his love to Damien and then he immediately gets killed off, which a lot of people were like, no, it's a bury the gays trope. But then other people felt like, well, if both Castiel and Dean, if Castiel's ruling heaven and Dean's up there too, no one ever really dies in Supernatural. They're just on a different plane. It really depends on how people want to read it. But I think there was so much pressure on that show that I don't think anyone would have been satisfied with the finale, especially since it was filmed during COVID, which put a, a lot of pressure. Yeah. And um, you're talking about, you're also talking about 15 years. That's like a marriage, a divorce and a marriage. And then also just thinking about not just the, not just the longevity of it, but you think about Supernatural and the time span that it crosses over because it crosses over the development of social media which is really interesting. Before Supernatural starts, if you talk about fan engagement with our media, it's very much one-sided, some fan letters. And if your short gets off the air, you may be part of a campaign to bring it back. But there's no real expectation from the fan base to really have any impact on the story, any impact on the actors or, or anything else. And that's the world in which that, that Supernatural develops in. And that's the world that a lot of the, those early 2000 shows developed in, that there was not that feedback that the Twitters and the Facebooks, so there was not that very immediate feedback from, from the fan base. And then as Supernatural evolves, again, so does social media. So you have this new medium that no one knows what to do with and all of a sudden you're actually talking to the fan and all of a sudden people are live tweeting and it's now they have almost a mandate to start engaging which was not what they signed up for exactly yeah and i find that this does happen with some of these longer running shows as the fandom starts engaging more as people start demanding more they find themselves in places they, they were not planning on signing up for in the beginning. And I'm thinking about Flash specifically. If you think about the Flash, Flash started as a spinoff of the Arrowverse was created. they kind of more socially relevant, but not really answering to too many people. <laughs> yeah. Flash was like the spinoff of it. We're going to be the fun sibling show. Okay, cool. But then they have a Black female lead which puts them in a different place than any other show before it in the comic book verse. Right. 
and all of a sudden you have Candace Patton, God bless her, <laughs> dealing with the first wave of the like backlash BS that we would become accustomed to when people are taking older properties and either rebooting them or bringing them into the modern day. Inherently politicized, even when it's right. not just her visibility as that central character. But right. you're, um, you're politicized for existing. Exactly. It's, oh, your visibility. People are going to have a lot of comments about that now, <laughs> which is, especially in the world of social media, really hard on the people who are most visible. And so you, and again, it's like, the it's interesting thinking about whether it's Hollywood in general, as people call it, or just media in general, people not being prepared for it. People saying, oh, we're going to do this new thing. We're going to do this thing because we think it's relevant to the times and not prepared or not expecting the backlash that would come with it. So that's why I'm like, God bless Candace Patton because she dealt with that alone yeah. because no one was expecting it and no one had the tools to handle it appropriately. And suddenly she has to be the voice for all these things that she probably didn't sign up for, or maybe she she was like suddenly having to have all these hard talks that are like, wait a minute, (laughs) I just wanted a job. I just wanted a job and not just, I just wanted a job, but. Or this is a really great character. Why am I suddenly being roasted for who I am? Yeah. Yeah. I just think about that also just in general with sometimes when shows are trying to respond to the moment that they don't expect the backlash or that they're like, wow, people are really racist out there. I didn't know. And I'm like, you didn't know your mom was racist until you brought your Black husband home? Really? Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting too, because if we're looking at just the CWWB kind of space, it is really ad- uh, radical that we have a central Black woman character in that show. So I don't know as much about The Flash, but I'm just seeing her is that because you look at Charmed, the original Charmed, which ran for eight years, which is like huge, record-breaking again, or a show that centered women. And I recently watched it all the way through during the pandemic. And it, so it had a lot of comforting, nostalgia, late 90s vibes for me. And it was surprisingly progressive for its situating wicca at the center of things at an era when there was like satanic panic and all if you don't remember there was a period of time when everyone was terrified that harry potter was going to turn everybody into devil worshipers this did happen exactly and so the show reads as fairly conservative now but when you think about it it's oh they're using these women's whiteness their middle classness, their more conventional religious background, all these different things to sanitize the fact that they're witches. They're not so scary as skinny, cute white ladies just trying to figure out how to earn a living or something. So they're using all these specifically whiteness, I think, things that have more power or agency to make witchcraft more acceptable. And yet, because of that, they're able to push certain boundaries. Like, I was surprised that they talked about things like breastfeeding in public, like normalizing breastfeeding in public, Um, what it really means to be, to have children. They they had some of the more evolved explorations of, like, pregnancy and childbirth and raising a family while working and all this stuff that pretty progressive for a mainstream show. 
And yet you look back and when there are people of color in there, you have Daryl, the one black cop who's like their sidekick. And it's a little awkward as the series goes on because he's always in the hot seat for everything they do. And you're like, that is a weird racial dynamic. (laughs) Daryl is either in trouble, being saved, or someone's trying to kill him. Yeah, yeah. And then the other people of color, or I don't think there are any real queer characters, but there's some characters with disabilities and they are either villains or victims. They're the villain or the victim of the week. And so it becomes really startling to look at that and say like, wow, all your, it takes place in San Francisco, which is a very like diverse community. And when it is- I mean, San, San, San Francisco's queer community is literally legendary. Exactly. And it's also a very like multiracial, multicultural city. And so when Charm depicts it as primarily white and the the victims and the villains each episode are uh, people with marginalized identities, you're like, wow, that that feels really problematic. And so you go from that to a central black female character in the flash who's very empowered. And I'm assuming she's like a superhero, right? Actually, no, she goes, or at least initially. So the the journey of Iris, Iris West is actually really interesting because it, and I I think this connects to Charmed in an interesting way, because I feel like Charmed, yes, you have a cisgender white woman center. There's a fact that in, in a setting, so many quote unquote women's issues were not explored, were not explored thoroughly. And so this is an opportunity through this narrative to explore these ideas around pregnancy, around motherhood, around dating, around things like date rape and culture and like all these other things that women definitely have to deal with and that have not been talked about. So yeah, it pushes that boundary. Absolutely. But then also... One thing that's interesting is the concept of, in many ways, like idealized white womanhood and femininity that's very like passive and now I'm very nice and I'm very polite and blah, 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 blah. And so in many ways, charmed and shows like it, that narrative is what they're pushing against. I am not that. I am a full-fledged human being, not like whatever fake pedestal that you put me on that I can always be knocked down in a second if you slut shame me. So that's what they're fighting against, which is interesting. Then you have Iris West in The Flash, who Iris is a character in its original text, is in that passive, nice white woman, she's the damsel, she's the girl. She's the one that we, the one that we lust after, et cetera, et cetera. And putting a black woman in that position, that somewhat passive position, is it's jarring for a whole lot of people. Yeah. <laughs> and as they write her better, because for a long time they don't. Yeah. <laughs> But as they write her better, she comes into her power a lot more and then comes more into her power specifically as a Black woman a lot more. But that takes a lot of time. And so it's really interesting, this kind of levels of what people have issues with and the story that they're trying to tell. And it's fascinating seeing how Specifically with Flash, Iris West is Black, so was her father, and essentially the Flash has been adopted, in quotes, if you know the Flash, you know what I'm talking about, (laughs) into this Black family, which culturally you don't see much culture there until much later. Interesting. 
So it's a lot of back and forth. It's a lot of, they did this, but they didn't do this, but they did this and they did this. And then later, uh, specifically when they get a black showrunner, things start to change and Iris is wearing her natural hair and then things feel more culturally competent and blah, 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 blah. But that again goes into that, are we going from representation matters, you're there, to authenticity matters. And then what is that arc of the show or the media that is allowing that to happen? Because it's, did you just not think about this? Did you just not think that putting Black women front and center of this show would actually cause problems for her? Did you just (laughs) not think that you should have a hairstylist who knows how to deal with Black hair? Did you just not think of blank the blank? Two. (laughs) Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, and going from that to, oh, I actually have to be conscious of all these different things now that I'm including these people, now that I'm including this narrative, now that I'm including this set of stories. Because I think for a lot of time, there was almost this, um, going way, way back to the early 90s, (laughs) there was like the Barbies. And when they tried to diversify the Barbies in the 90s, all they did was take Barbie and dip her in browner paint. Yeah. That was it. And that seems to be what they've done sometimes in media. <laughs> they, exactly. they, they've just t- taken this character and <laughs> dipped her in slow. <laughs> oh, <laughs> you're now this ethnicity. Oh, now you're this one. Oh, my. That's exactly but, what I was thinking. <laughs> yeah. But what also happened with Barbie because I still like work with kids uh, about, mm, we'll say 10 years ago, they do have their diverse lineup of dolls and whatever, but now their faces look different. They have different features. They have different body types. They have different clothes. They have different histories. It's not just they dipped the Barbies in paint. They took in consideration, what do people of this background actually look like? (laughs) <laughs> and what, do, what does their hair texture actually look like? What type of stories are people from this culture actually telling their kids? So it's that cultural competency, which as also I've seen that more in media, but that takes a lot more work and a lot more time and a lot more consideration. And so sometimes the question is whether or not the, the, the writers or the creators or the producers or the people who sign, who sign the checks, if they actually think they have to do that at all, if they're willing to do the work and if they're willing to put in the money behind it. Yeah, I completely agree. And then you, it's cultural competency and then you have to think about things in terms of, her name's Iris, right? Yeah. Okay, so you were mentioning how she starts out as this very unique character, and that's something that lands very differently when it is a woman of color, because you're thinking about all these ways in which we're being asked to minimize ourselves, or when, if we get loud, we'll be called hysterical or whatever, mm-hmm. which is magnified, and it's a little bit more intense than just being a woman. There was a lot of white feminism in Charm, and so suddenly, if you put characters of color in there, you have to be thinking about how that shifts the the character themselves and how certain things read differently when they engage with other people because we're suddenly looking at them through an intersectional lens. 
which also makes me think of the Charmed reboot. And I know we've been talking about this so much. Yeah. Also, but, oh my God, it is so much to unpack. It is, but you know, you segue <laughs> perfectly. So Charmed reboot recently, they rebooted it and its birth was awkward. Yeah. <laughs> uh, first of all, because so many, this Charmed fandom through through reruns and ever remain strong. Rose McGowan, Holly Marie Combs, Alyssa Milano, also very active within that community. And when they rebooted, apparently no one gave them a call and they was feeling some type of way about it. And I understand by the time the show ended, they were producers, they had their say in this stuff and were very protective of it, which makes sense. When it rebooted, they were like, hey, we're going to do Charmed again, but now our characters are, are all Latinas and we are going to have this different type of magic and it's going to be a lot of fun and duh. Very exciting. <laughs> Until you dig a little bit deeper <laughs> and you realize that only one character is actually Puerto Rican and the other two are multiracial, having one black parent and one white parent. One is one is an actor from England. And I guess since all three of them look brown ambiguously, we're just gonna be like, they're all they're all Latinas. And no one's gonna notice. Which is so uncomfortable. I feel for those actors. That's something that they were probably not prepared. Yeah, I love them. They're so great. And I'm like, wow, they've walked into a difficult situation that they were probably not prepared for because what are you going to do I'm sure they were like this is my big break and people weren't thinking through the dynamics of not hiring a completely Latina cast which was surprising to me because I think the producers from Jane the Virgin had a heavy hand in this yes they did and Jane the Virgin was much more I think thoughtful with how they talked about race and culture and it felt like a it felt like Miami it felt like a multicultural community and then we have issues of when I teach this in my Legacy of Witchcraft class, I tell my students, it doesn't feel like a Charmed reboot to me. It feels like a completely different witch show in tone. And because the original Charmed is very playful and very campy and it's very tongue in cheek, even though it's dealing with some serious issues sometimes, this reboot is a little heavier. And I feel like they were trying to attach it to the Charmed legacy to get people to buy into the idea of like Brujas. But I was like, I think they should have just embraced like a whole new kind of witch show. I think people would have responded to it, but it's interesting because I, I was here for it from day one. I was like, it's a little clunky at first, that first episode. And my students, we watch it and they say it's a little on the nose with the whole Me Too movement. Like it's making a clear statement that it's really trying to talk about relevant topical issues. And I, I totally get that, but I loved that they drew this clear correlation between like evil demon white guy on campus and the Me Too movement, they're connected. And he is a literal predator, uh, a demon. And then there's some overlap with Me Too stuff. And I'm like, I love that they're just like intertwining those things because that's what you would do with magic, right? And that's what being a Bruja is. It's social justice, it's magic, it's seeing the interconnectivity of things. And where I think Supernatural or the original Charmed or even Buffy the Vampire Slayer are really strong is they lean into that trope of the monster of the week is also representing something that the characters have to work through. And so I was here for it. As the series goes on though, it, I think it struggles to 
deal with those issues of occupying intersectional identities. You have sisters who are Latina and queer. You have sisters who are Afro-Latinx. And so it's almost like they don't quite know how to have that conversation. And so the magic plot line and the social justice diversity, equity, inclusion plot lines veer off in separate directions. And to me, that's really sad because one, it's harder to tell what's going on to get a clear plot line throughout each season. And two, I think those things should be intertwined. It seems like to me a natural thing to intertwine, but it really shows that almost the narrative of that series is starting to fray, especially in season three. Um, Season two, it's like they forgot that they were doing something more inclusive and had some different plots. And then season three, I think what we saw a lot of people do in the year 2020, where it's just like hitting hard on the big anti-racism themes and just getting really aggressive about some of that stuff that came off um, really uncomfortable for me to watch. Uh, you, you talked about authentic representation and some of it felt like a little too heavy handed to be real, although I appreciate that they were trying. So. Yeah, tell me your thoughts on that, because I know we had a very lengthy talk. (laughs) Well, it's just, it's interesting for me to see what people are trying to do, what people are attempting to do, but it can be hard to do something without the lived experience. And I think sometimes when you don't have the lived experience, you can very much miss how these things are integrated. I know it took me a couple of times to get through, um, the first season of The New Charmed because it felt like there was things going on, then we're gonna stop all this action to have a definition. It's like, stop. The word for the day is misogynoir. This means, (laughs) (laughs) this episode of Charmed was brought to you by the letter R. (laughs) Racism, don't be one. (laughs) So, Perfectly described. Um, and I feel like if you do live through the experience, if you know someone who is an activist and you've seen how it informs their life, that like may, may not be every day, but it is still constant. Or when someone is not challenging someone at work because today this is not the day to do it, but maybe when they go home, there's something that they're dealing with. Like these, these are the type of nuances that you need to have a a nuanced and intense conversation with somebody and actually be in a relationship with somebody in order to get it. And that's something that you don't fully understand if you're getting most of your understanding from the nightly news or papers or books or whatever. Like it, it's so great to to do your research. And that was that was something that's actually been really interesting with watching the series. It's not that I don't think people didn't do their research. I can tell that things were researched. Yeah. But the lived experience of it and the how they incorporate. And I don't know, stereotype or not, and please forgive me if it is, but I'm like, so all these lovely women of color are living in a house. And we have no scenes of loud music cleaning up Sunday. I do not understand this <laughs> because I have yet to meet anyone who doesn't blast their music and clean things at least one day. Like, yeah. 
Yeah, it's for me when I saw it, they in, in the season one, they had especially they had moments where they were really trying to reference cultural things like the cojita uh, they make for Christmas and the use of Spanish words and magic. But by season two, I was like, yeah, so it's pretty much a white show with characters of color. And I was like, I'm okay with it because I know like everyone's relationship to their culture is different and they establish that they're learning as they go with the brujeria, which to me with my background, that's always like a sign that they're like, yeah, I've been disconnected from some things and it's clear that their mom didn't show them everything about their background. But there's some things where you're like, yeah, this is basically pretty white. Like you don't see them. And, and I don't want to make sweeping gen- generalities, but in my family, we hang around in the kitchen a lot. We cook together a lot. We are loud. There's more of an expressive sense of self. And even the way we talk about different things, it's not like the characters. When I'd say we would have conversations about inclusion, the way the characters may see Maggie and Mel talk about like inclusion, sometimes it's they're so aggressively woke and knowledgeable about everything that it doesn't feel like a natural part of life. One of the things I loved about Jane the Virgin is Jane was really self-aware and progressive in a lot of ways, like thinking about her grandmother who's undocumented and being a woman of color and issues of class. But then when she dates a guy who's bi, she freaks out a little bit because she's never, she doesn't, she wouldn't think of herself as queerphobic, but she's, what does this mean for me? I've never dated a bi person and she freaks out. And of course she works through it and it's all good. But to me, I love that because she is a flawed human being who doesn't have all the right answers to everything. Just because she's a woman of color doesn't mean she's like super woke with everything (laughs) and and then also like the way that people use that word woke, like often it often annoys me because it's like it's completely different than its actual definition exactly it's been appropriated by pop culture right because the actual definition is about awareness the actual definition is about are you aware of what's going on because people do things in the night when you're not paying attention and so you need to stay woke to stay alive people have changed it to any type of social justice issue is woke which I'm like that's not what it means but anyway that's no no and I do think that's an important point too because woke also started out as a term used in black communities okay so this is interesting to me because now it's been so co-opted by popular culture to be anything that's like quote-unquote some sort of liberal social agenda And so when we talk about aggressively woke characters, like in Charmed, it's actually not what woke really means. (laughs) It's not what it means, but it's also, it's also not how people who do have that type of education and who do have that type of knowledge actually interact. One of the things that happens um, early in Charmed is Maggie is going to be a part of the sorority. It's a primarily white sorority. I do not know anyone any person of color who if they are going to a primarily white sorority that their friends and their loved ones the people would be like okay you can do this but watch your back because you can't do everything your white sorority sisters will do you you will be the one blamed you will be the one arrested if they decide to go shoplifting for fun watch your back And the fact that no one has this conversation with Maggie and with Mel, she's like a walking dictionary of social justice concepts, (laughs) but I'm like, are you actually organizing? Are you actually going into these spaces? Are you actually 
challenging something and doing that work. And again, it's like, what the writers or creators, whomever, whatever their perspective is on people who have that type of understanding. Because there are absolutely people who just walk around like walking dictionaries and don't actually do anything. <laughs> those people absolutely exist. But there are all also those people who I don't have time to define everything for you. I'm too busy protesting at City Hall. Yeah. And I'll see, or I don't have time to do this. I am too busy organizing um, a food pantry. I'm too busy getting this reading program off the ground. I'm too busy challenging this particular thing. So I don't have time to walk you through why this is important. Yeah, I'm busy embodying this and the definitions matter less or, or they're not something that I'm always gonna be spouting out because I've got other things to do, yeah. Exactly, it's, it's interesting when places are, are trying to move forward and what they come up with. Because it isn't like it's always not on point. Yeah. Because I think about something more modern to me is uh, Star Trek Discovery. Mm -hmm. And I really appreciate what Discovery does because what it does in terms of narrative is that a lot of these characters are embodying these things. There's an entire, it isn't even, it isn't even an arc there's a character who at one point just lets everyone know, hey, I don't use she, her pronouns. My, my pronouns are, are they them? Nothing is made of it. Everyone goes along. The, the language switch happens and we keep on pushing. This moment is like five minutes, if that. I love that. Yeah. And, and, and it's okay. We love you. That's what you say that your pronouns are. We roll with it. We keep moving. Hey, did you get the calculations done? Yeah. And I, I think that's what you're pointing to, like a really important part of this like authentic inclusion, which is how does this play out in real life? Even with Charmed, they moved the series over to Seattle. And some friends of mine and I were just laughing because I went to graduate school in Seattle and it is a very white city and it is very segregated. There are different neighborhoods for different people. And if you want to see like brown people, you have to go to Eastern Washington. And I am a light skinned woman of color. I am white passing in a lot of contexts. I was stopped on the street there regularly and asked what I was, because that was a city that was not comfortable with mixed race people. They weren't comfortable with talking about race to people of color, even though they touted like really liberal values. So for me, every time I watch the show, I just have to laugh because they're in this, they're in Seattle and they're in this like safe space, which I thought was hilarious. Their little safe space community, which, which just made me laugh. So work. Yeah, it didn't completely work, but I was like, it's, that's a very Seattle thing. But I was like, that's such great moments for them to be like, wow, this is a really white space for us or, uh, oh, safe space, rolling their eyes because it's not a safe space for everyone. Or I have to fully admit, I am in love with the Harry Macy, uh, you know, <laughs> Harry white lighter, dark lighter. She just needs a thruple. I'd be <laughs> allowing, I'd allow her billionaire love triangle interest in. <laughs> he started using his resources for good once he realized they were being manipulated. But it's so funny because early in the series, I was like, oh, so they're just not going to have a conversation about interracial relationships. And that's fine. I think one way we model normalization is just saying he's just going to be a good person and he's going to model how to not be a douchey white dude. And 
one of my favorite parts of the first episode is it ends on don't trust Harry. All his white privileges and it doesn't work for those women. They, he has to earn their respect and their trust, which I thought was great. But then it just says, yeah, he's there. They like him. And then in season three, they're suddenly having these really after school special conversations about what it means to be a white man in a relationship with a black woman and he could never understand. And I'm like, this is so uncomfortable. Like I'm getting secondhand embarrassment watching this. And as I'm watching myself, I, I appreciated that conversation, but I did also feel it could have been done better. But it was also nice that she finally at some point had another Black character who had a Black lived experience to actually talk to. Yeah. yeah, that was a great scene where they say it's just nice to be with someone where you don't have to explain because if you're a person of color, what that feeling is. And you're like, yeah, that's nice. It's, <laughs> not, it's nice. Someone, but again, it took three seasons Yeah, when... It started out as we are super progressive, but it took three seasons to get that one conversation that did feel somewhat normal and earned. But like, so it's a question of, because of course, Trump's not the only show. There's so many others. I'm really excited about Naomi out in the CW and how they are, they are living in the space of this character, of this young Black queer character. And she's just living her best life with her multiple love interests while discovering that she has superpowers. It's great. But living in that space and how that is different from a very didactic presentation of what that might be, of what that experience might be, which is very different than ignoring that existence. (laughs) Exactly. So we have this, yeah, this, like I said, again, this evolving narrative of how do the media that we consume, how do they tell these stories and how are they meeting the moment and sometimes how they're not. And one thing I think the series is doing well too is like the inclusion of trans characters. And I've noticed it wasn't just one trans student they threw in. It's like they have a cousin. And again, I think there's some clunkiness there, but I love that they're trying to explore this, even if they don't get it right. The Sabrina, Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, where I think there's a lot to enjoy about that show. One thing that frustrated me, because I was like, wow, inclusive cast and like a non-binary actor playing a non-binary character, woo. I just, I finished season one and I was like, it's still centering white witch, white feminism. And now all these underrepresented characters become her accessories, which is an actual problem in real witchcraft communities that uh, cultural mm. appropriation, white feminism. And so I see them trying to broaden the conversation, but they can't quite get away from centering the white woman yet. Whereas, and I guess there's a white center, woman centered in this too, but um, watching Wheel of Time recently, I. I kept marveling at how organic everything felt with characters of color, sort of their progressiveness with things. And I think the big thing, like if I'm comparing it to Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, is it wasn't like finger pointing like the Chilling Adventures of Sabrina does. Look at us, we're we're so inclusive. Look at us hitting all the, you know. We checked all the boxes. We hit all the buttons. Look at us. Woo! Yeah, uh, whereas, you know, Wheel of Time is, yes, this is a world that is multiracial and multicultural. 
there are queer characters and it's just part of the conversation in a way that they don't have to be like, hold on, let's explain polyamory. <laughs> our regular show or even I'm so sorry I'm, just, I'm thinking about what this is this episode of the world of time is brought to you by the letter p for polyamory, polyamory. Yeah. <laughs> did you know ace and i can also have multiple partners yeah exactly it's like, asexuality was a thing <laughs> let's tell hey. the more yeah it's it's so it just it feels authentic to these people and to the world and even there's been all these great articles about how it strategically avoids like the rape culture fetishization of Game of Thrones. Mm-hmm. So there's moments where you do see violence, but it's really, and it's important to the story, but it's avoiding sexualizing that violence, especially for the female characters and the women of color characters. And yet it's done so artfully and so subtly without drawing attention to itself that it really flows with the story and what's happening there. So that's a moment where I'm like, wow, I don't know how they did it, but they really nailed a lot of important aspects of authentic, inclusive storytelling. I don't feel pulled out of the narrative in the way I do thinking about these Latina sisters in Seattle, not coming home and being like, oh my gosh, I just need a break from like white communities today. Or I just need to like, or or the conversation of I'm really attracted to Harry, but I don't know if I can date another white guy because there's all these issues. <laughs> or or, or Sammy's yeah. story is that she hasn't actually dated another white dude, but whatever. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. She's only, yeah, that's right. She doesn't have a lot of dating experience. That's right. But it's so it's interesting. And I, I do have a lot of love for the charmed reboot just because it was really nice to see brown women. Yeah. But yeah, some of the most recent things, like even talking about the microaggressions in the workplace that Macy goes through or Mel does has our huge on the campus moment where she gets that teacher uh, that chair fired and I saw both those episodes and I was going through some pretty intense stuff at my own workplace we'll put that very vaguely and generally <laughs> but I was like social justice is not as easy as going viral and having that person removed if it were like no it's not. And even with a video like that, she probably would have been reprimanded. And I don't think that Dean or that her chair, whoever that was, would be removed in the same way. Like it's not as easy as making a grand gesture and then having your answer solved. So there are some things where I was like, okay, I get it's like TV magic. And, but again, I think that also falls into the whole lived experience aspect of it, because even thinking about going back to the first episode, they cause this big kerfuffle we never really go back to it I think we go back to it but it's this idea that the protest and the people getting up in arms that's the win whereas if you know the type of work that is involved that's not the win that's the publicity the win is the actual legal case the win is what's in boardrooms the win is a lot more it's a lot more without the sexual assault a lot more game of thrones-ish yeah exactly it is it's paperwork it's long hours it's 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 all these unglamorous un- un- forms of labor exactly for instance if you t- talk about the you know in actual history the montgomery bus boycott we talk about Rosa Parks and we talk about the bus boycott that was took place over the year and those things were visible the actual win 
was Claudette Colvin's legal case. Who, who was like, what, 15, 16 at the time. And they, and they didn't make her the face because she was too young, too dark. And later they found out she was pregnant, but it was her case that allowed this to actually happen. Exactly. That, that is the work. The other stuff is the presentation and is the what people see. And if you're going to tell the story of the people involved, not just the presentation they were forced to put on to get people on their side, then you need to know the legal case as much as what the PR campaign was. And those were two different things. Exactly. You and know. as and as I think dated as the original term is, in some ways it does a better job of looking at the day in, day out, like yes. labor of what their job is and like paying the bills and juggling things and Piper's all and- Piper's entire. I'm trying to be a respected professional arc and no one's listening to me. <laughs> and she goes exactly. through that for a while. And I own a club and this is what it means to be responsible for this. And then Here's what it means to be to come back to school as an older student and yeah. I don't know what I'm doing. And then I think I want to be a psychologist, but then I landed this job as a writer for a newspaper and it still has some of that TV magic there, but you do get a sense of like, they are working, this is labor. And, and I see that in moments in the Charmed reboot where Maggie is really trying to figure out how to land an internship and figuring out who she is. I think she also wants to study psychology and But you don't, and I guess I see this more, and I know this is like a pet peeve, but because I do teach in higher ed, I see Mel, and you don't get the same sense of labor for what she does. I'm like, that's a lot. Or how she like magically buys her whole class these like books that are going to easily be like $100 a pop. I'm like, no, she doesn't have that kind of money. She's going to Xerox excerpts, (laughs) you know, or it's like, so you don't get the sense of labor or you never have them talk about like money or finances. It's just, they're plugged into these identities and we don't feel it as a lived experience completely. And I think it's because they get so confused about where they want the story to go. We're talking about magic, we're talking about social justice. You actually make me think about something. We're gonna wrap up really quickly because I know you got work to do. And you actually made me think about Abbott Elementary, the the, the show Abbott Elementary. (laughs) And as someone who did work in elementary school and currently still occasionally still does, Abbott Elementary feels very real to me, even as a sitcom, for the details that they put in. That yes, it's an overarching comedy, but something as seeing like a little boy who spends his lunch period inside the classroom so he can sleep on the rug. And that being important, them having to raise their own money for school supplies, just things day in, day out, you know, the, there's enough drama of what some people would consider mundane that are very critical. And it's just like this feel, this experience that I'm watching, while it is very broad and a comedy, it feels very lived in. Yes. And I can connect with that. And I think, I honestly think that's something to do with, with the writing staff or with the producers or whatever. Cause I feel like with the original Charmed because you did have a, a majority white staff even though they did some 
absolute BS with Candace. And I'm sorry that they messed you up. I apologize, Candace. That was <laughs> um, but you did have people who were signing checks and writing scripts who were speaking closer to their lived experience. And so they knew the nuances. And I feel like, while I feel like that the Charmed Reboot, they do have more writers who do share that experience. It isn't everybody. And the question is, again, who's signing the checks? Who is saying, oh, this is what I'm writing and it's cool. And someone says, I don't think that's realistic. It's you don't know how systems of oppression actually work. So yes, the system <laughs> does protect itself from change and it's a problem. So yeah, they really would do this. Exactly. Like, eh, I don't buy it. Exactly. It's not as clean cut. I uh, Just to add to that, uh, I was watching Rutherford Falls in the fall and it's a uh, uh, indigenous writers, indigenous creators, indigenous story. And one thing I thought was so refreshing about it is you could tell that it was indigenous writers and an indigenous story, particularly because it leaned away from stereotypes as all native peoples or all people of color as like social justice warriors. So you have the one woman, the central character who's like trying to change things and She's working in a casino with people from her tribe where I don't really care. I just want my paycheck. And she has the white friend who's like a little insensitive and thinks he's basically a good guy, but doesn't realize how his white privilege is affecting their relationship and stuff. And to me, it felt so natural because I'm like, yeah, this is, this feels like people I know. <laughs> right, right. And it's not, and because I think she, the creator behind it, specifically shied away from being quote unquote woke by pop culture standards, or she was like, this is what our communities look like. And so I'm looking at those shows that are getting it right and looking at the ones that are trying really hard, which I appreciate and seeing where, where it doesn't quite line up. Yeah, and I think it's a lot of, it's a perspective thing I feel. If, and I think this is the case with anything. Right. Your view of yourself, if you're a parent, your view of yourself will be different than your child's view of you. <laughs> and you, if you want to have an actual relationship, have to get comfortable with the way that you're being seen might not align with the way you think you are. Right. And growth, you have to deal with the multiple visions of yourself. And I feel like what happens sometimes is especially if you're in a place where you are not and you don't have that much power or influence you may write or create something that shows a perspective which maybe your boss maybe whomever feels like that reflects on them and they don't feel comfortable with this view of them that you're like yeah. they're like this has nothing to do with you but that I, I, okay I guess I have to make this gentler yeah or sometimes like going to other extremes, like when Macy has her microaggression thing and the white lady like calls the cops on her or whatever. And I was like, the real version of that is actually gonna be much more subtle where you're like, I feel really awful when she just patted me on the head. When I Th There was that moment and the other black woman was there. And I'm like, I'm glad you strategically added one black actress here so you could have that moment. But yes, that, that feels real. Yeah, exactly. And you're like, okay, yeah, that works where they're both like, we get what's happening here. 
But and the fact that they, the fact that they don't actually say what happened, they just say, "Did you just?" Yeah. Yes. Uh, that is all the conversation that needs to happen. And that the the woman working there can't necessarily say anything because her job is dependent on this. Which I was like, that that felt really real. And then when it escalated and they escorted her out, I was like, okay, that feels like they're really trying to make a point. But I was like, sometimes what happens is it's much more subtle where she's, you know what? I don't think we're a good fit. Or it would be something that would be like, and maybe things are do happen in more extreme ways, but in, in the hallowed realms of academia, everything, a tea party with Lady Catherine de Bourgh or something. So it's all, <laughs> all microaggressions. So it's just more of a, huh, I'm going to do something passive aggressive, or I'm just going to orchestrate this so that I don't have to deal with you anymore. And so I was like, I would like to see some more of those subtleties because that's how it plays out in real life. It's not as clean cut as angry white lady Karen calling the cops on me, although it can be. Oh yeah, no, if you can absolutely be escorted, quote unquote, off the premises, which does happen. But also, I personally, and this is the fact that in that episode, it just, someone says it and then we cut to the security guard, like his hand on her arm. I'm like, there's a lot in between there. Yeah. It's you, it's like the story, there is story in the results, but the, a lot of the story is in the in-between. Exactly. What one thing I loved about that too, which I thought was really poignant about that episode and which I think they nailed is like, Macy is like a powerful bruja and yet she feels really disempowered in that situation. And I love how they play with that complexity. And I'd like to see that more like they did in the original term of I'm a powerful witch. How hard is it to get a job? Or I'm a powerful witch. Why am I letting this awful white woman get to me? But it does. And she did. And she did a violating thing. And that just is gonna, that's gonna take some time to heal from or process from. I just, I wanted to see more of that in a way that felt real, but I don't know. I'm so torn with this show. I had to stop for a little bit to get like a break. I yeah. may go back to it, but I like that they're trying, but I, I want them to have a more cohesive energy. <laughs> and and I think that's, it's going to be interesting seeing how it goes, like both this property and others who are, you know, trying to do similar things, because it's not like it's easy and no, yeah. and no one is saying it is a complicated story. And then also, like I said, what we're dealing with is a big narrative shift from who you're centering and how their stories get told to centering a different group of people whose stories by nature of the way they are forced to be in the world have to be told differently. And then whether or not the creators or the writers, if they are able to tell the stories they are trying to tell. And, And sometimes you have to admit your limits. I know with me, when I'm writing or I'm creating, there are times I definitely need to call somebody in and be like, I do not have this background. I don't have this ethnicity. I don't have this experience. I want to work with this character. Can you, somebody who I trust or sensing to a writer who I'm able to, to, to pay for, can you help me get this? Or even me really sitting with this and me being like, okay, if I am someone of privilege in the circumstance, what am I not thinking about? What do I not have to worry about? You know, do I not have to worry about 
how I'm going to pay for this? Do I not have to worry about this? Do I not have to worry about this? Because it's what you don't think of where a lot of those subtleties come in. But I did want to ask you, uh, last question, since you are a writer and creator yourself, what advice would you give for any creatives navigating our current social climate and creative landscape? There's a lot of people who say they feel scared of getting something wrong or whatever. They're like, you mean I can't write about someone who looks different from me? So what advice would you give someone who is is trying to tell different stories, different diverse stories, and is not sure how to go about it? That, that is such a great question. And one I wrestle with every day, to be completely honest. I like what you said about sensitivity readers or or finding people you trust and know who can walk you through different things that you might not be able to have the, the orientation or perspective for. I also think sometimes you do have to question, like, is this my story to tell? And that's a different line for everyone. But sometimes it's like, you know what? I don't think this is mine to tell. I'm going to leave that for other people. And then I think for me, so I just last year came out with my novella, Weep Woman Weep, about the legend of La Llorona, the weeping woman. And it's a cozy Gothic fairy tale. And it deals with a lot of issues of being mixed race and having a multicultural background. So Hispanic, Indigenous, very much in New Mexico. And I share this because as I was writing it, I had to take off my academic brain. Mm. It was the central character who's narrating it. She's a farmer. She's like, salt of the earth, figured out stuff her own, her own way, and she's breaking cycles of ancestral haunting. But I realized as I was writing about things, like I used the word indigenous. And when I went through my second reprint, I realized Mercy would never use the word indigenous. It's a fancy academic word. That's not her language. But so as I'm thinking about in like authentic, inclusive representation, you also have to think about what's authentic to the stories and the characters. So even though you might say indigenous is a word I would use, is that right for your character? Or even though I am aware of social issue XYZ, is my character aware of it in the same way? And I think one thing we talked about today is the after school special, like what's the word for it? I don't know, like social justice explaining of certain things. <laughs> If, if you find yourself like doing that in your stories, it, it probably means you need to step back and find your characters and your narrative more. So authentic, inclusive storytelling is also about understanding what's right for the story and not just making sure you're completing that checklist for the social and cultural moment you're living through right now. It really means to understand who is this character in this lived experience, and that is realistically be subtler and messier than, than I think what some of those checklist uh, woke media likes to portray. Yeah. Also thinking about your characters, education, class representation, like class representation of people who are, you know, lower class or who are, are living through poverty, class representation for them is awful. Like <gasps> absolutely awful across all across all, all racial and social experiences because we act like in our media that not only they don't exist but they don't have stories that are worth telling which is absolutely not the case yeah yeah absolutely and being but, aware of that and sensitive to it yeah and being sensitive to that and being sensitive to that reality and so as creatives we it's important that we look at that that we we 
try to be authentic, whether it's a, a class experience, an ethnic experience, a queer experience, whatever experience it is. I, I think this is also partially tied into the idea of a cancel culture or call out culture. You had mentioned earlier with Supernatural, it came into being as social media was coming in. So they get that rapid fire response, whether they want it or not. Right. And I think sometimes what happens to us as creatives is we get a little afraid. <laughs> right. Ooh, if I don't get it right, or if people assume character X says this, that's what I believe. And that's not the case. So I think there's also a certain amount of exploration and courage that needs to happen to say, I might not get this right, but I'm open to improving it. I'm open to exploring. But also, I, I think one thing maybe we didn't talk about, which ties into this, is that because people who are underrepresented are so, we're so underrepresented. So when we so see- hungry. Yeah. So when we see something like Charmed with a Latina cast, it's being asked to do so much. It is. Just one text. And I think that's, they're, you feel the weight of that. They're really being crushed by that. And so I think as a creator, any creator with a marginalized identity, I think you have to realize that you don't need to be the voice for all the things. And you need to give yourself permission to let your story be the story it's going to be. And hopefully that'll encourage more people of color or various backgrounds to also share their stories. So you don't have to have all the answers or all the narratives. Just sharing yours is powerful enough. And I think that is the perfect place to end. <laughs> Thank you so much, Maria. Thank you so much. It's so Thank great you having, so you, having you here. If people want to find you on the interwebs or support your projects, how can they find you? Yes. Well, thank, first of all, again, thank you so much for having me. I really love your podcast. And of course, I love you. Um, you can find me on my website, uh, www.mariadeblasi.com. If you want more of these sorts of conversations, I just started a blog called The Bruja Professor, which explores these issues for the classes I teach in a joyful, through a joyful lens without pulling punches in terms of getting into the nitty gritty like we did today. And uh, you can find me on also social media. I'm on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook um, and all of that's listed on my website as well. So thank you so much. This is such a great conversation. Oh, it was great having you here. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much for listening. And everyone, I'll see you next time on Introspectional. 